Hello and welcome to Adventurous Investor in Conversation. I'm David Stevenson and in this podcast episode I catch up with Andrew Craig from Plain English Finance to talk about the whole area of biotech. I've already talked to him on the blog on the uh, Substack before but this is a chance to catch up with him in person and talk about why he thinks now, literally now, the next few weeks is the best time to be investing in UK and Australian small to mid-cap listed biotech stops. It's a really interesting listen. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Adventurous Investor in Conversation. I'm delighted to have back on, well that's the first time in a podcast, but we've interviewed before, Andrew Craig. Um, Plain English, is that it? I always get it wrong. Plain English Finance, yeah. That's it, Plain English Finance. And uh, uh, potentially a putative new fund that's investing in the biotech space, uh, which uh, may or may not happen in the next few weeks and months, years, days, hours, minutes, years, whatever. <laughs> well, well David, we're hoping to publish the prospectus in the next few days. So let, let's, okay. hope, let's hope it's a may not a may not. <laughs> <laughs> I never know with markets. That's the reason I was just putting well, that element right. of caution in there. Hmm. Um, Okay, but the reason I've really got Andrew on is because Andrew is uh, a real expert on the whole biotech sector, which I spent a fair bit of time on on the Adventures of Invested Newsletter talking about. So, and I just thought it's great to get Andrew back on and talking a bit about the biotech sector. And um, Andrew, I suppose the $64 trillion question, though I suspect the sector's not worth $64 trillion anymore. Five and a half trillion. Although, uh, <laughs> Only five and a half trillion. Okay, fair enough. Sorry, so five, six trillion if you include medical devices as well. Uh, okay, fine. Uh, yeah. Peanuts, you know, nothing, yeah. nothing at all. Um, yeah. So the, the the sixty-four trillion dollar question, I suppose, of biotech is, it's you know, we, we talk about there's been a bit of a tech route. Well, there's been a bit of a biotech route for even yeah. longer. When did when did the rot set in? And how long has it been going on for? And is it as severe as we've seen with some of the tech names? I mean, even Meta, you know, which is a leviathan of the tech space is down yeah. some, I can't remember, the figures is 50, 60% year yeah, to date. $600 um, million dollars or something of that order. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mark, Mark Zucker will barely be able to afford that 15th super yacht. Um, so is, um, is, has, how long has the biotech route been going on for? And how, how bad is it in historical terms? Well, it's very bad year to date, but I think it's when I mean, we had this conversation before, I think it's very important to distinguish between what what my area of interest in, which is sort of basically ex US life sciences. Yeah, it's, yep. really, it's life life sciences, which includes biotech, so therapeutic stuff, but also medical devices, you know, so yep. robotics, consumables, um, yep. all that good stuff, as well as just bleeding edge trying to cure cancer. Um and, you know, I think the NASDAQ biotech index is down something that was certainly north of 60 percent. I think it's bounced a little of late, but it's, it's had a very, very challenging year. But I think as, as per the conversation you and I had earlier in the year, the U.S. NASDAQ biotech got very, very excitable um, in the last couple of years. And what that did was suck in an awful lot of fair weather capital, sort of hedge funds that are just jumping on the bandwagon had previously not really looked at the space at all. Um, and that was partly driven by, you know, the fact that the COVID vaccine was delivered in 10 months, whereas the Ebola vaccine took 20 years to deliver. I mean, that, that is a very, by the way, that's a that's a real point that we think will cast a halo uh, effect o- over the next, you know, several years. Um, but it was really also driven by the fact that for the last 
15 plus years, you know, biotech is unimpeached. Well, NASDAQ biotech, US biotech has unimpeachably delivered pretty solid mid-teens digit returns. Um, and, the, and so, it, you know, it has, like anything else, sort of fear of missing out and success begets success. The, the, more, the more durable and long a trend in a given sector is that it is eliciting double digit returns, the more likely that people are going to sit up and take notice. And so there was obviously a fair bit of that um, in biotech uh, in the last couple of years, which was then kind of supercharged by COVID. And, and so what that means is that certainly in the, on, on the other side of the Atlantic from where we're sitting, um, a lot of I think a lot of fair weather capital, there was, you know, there are a lot of IPOs. There are a lot of heroic assumptions about value creation. There are a lot of American companies which have cash sort of um, structural cash burn levels, which are a long, long way north of um, their peers outside of the States for all sorts of structural reasons. Because, you know, there are lots of um, investors in America who are much more prepared to to make investments with heroic assumptions about um, what, what they may or may not be able to raise in the future than, than the poor relations in Oxford or Cambridge or Sydney or Melbourne or wherever else, um, you know, Zurich or Geneva or, or Stockholm, who in the last many years um, have had to soldier on in a very, very challenged um, uh, environment for fundraising. And I think therein lies that there's a, there's a real two-speed thing here, which is America's a law unto itself it got very frothy and the wind is coming out of the sails for all sorts of reasons. You know, the same reason that the, the mega cap tech stocks are coming out or certainly analogous. Whereas elsewhere, um, for all sorts of structural reasons, and particularly in Britain and Australia, which is our main focus, um, a whole raft of companies with really good quality IP um, have spent years, you know, running on fumes and being incredibly challenged and, and if I may, the reason for that really front and centre, I mean, we can talk about Brexit, we can talk about the travails of certain fund managers who may or may not be based in Oxfordshire. <laughs> it's, it's really to, much more prosaically to do with the fact that these are smaller companies by definition and smaller right. company, a big billion dollar smaller company funds, well, you know, whether that's Fidelity or Aberdeen Standard Life or Schroders or whatever else, traditionally... Those pots of money, smaller company fund managers have been generalist fund managers, um, right. and so and they have a lot. Of, many of them are of a certain or were of a certain age of state, age and stage, and remember kind of the late nineties when, if you like, biotech one point uh, wasn't necessarily a resounding success, um, and they were sort of once bitten twice shy on the sector as a whole and didn't really want to engage with what they deem to be a very highly special sector. And you can understand that because if you're doing 13, 14, 15% annualized returns, which some of these fund managers have done in the smaller company space, buying Games Workshop or Britvic or ASOS or whatever else, yeah. why do you want to try and engage with a in, notionally in inverted commas, complicated, bleeding edge yeah. company that yeah. may or may not have so, the cancer periods from now, you know? So so in a sense, what, sense we've, what we've got here is we've got two tracks. We've got the US versus the rest. Yeah. and. The U.S. is sort of caught up. Are you saying the U.S. is sort of almost caught up with the rest in the sense that the rest has had a really tough few years and now the U.S. is finally getting a good kicking? And then yeah. is there a second track, which is small cap versus large cap, which everybody's – well, not everybody, but many people have heard of the, the big biotech names, quite a few mm. have been taken over. But actually the small caps they've actually had, particularly if you're small cap non-U.S., you, you've, in a sense, been double jeopardied. Yeah, well, although amazingly enough, um, so it was literally yesterday I was running the AIM-listed 
um, pharma and biotech and um, healthcare um, technology stocks as a sort of aggregated mm -hmm. index. And their five-year annualized performance is still knocking around 20% per annum. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Even there, it was. I think they're off about twenty-two and a bit percent year to date in aggregate. I mean, that's because there are, you know, there are lots of stocks that were fifty million pound market cap stocks uh, six, seven years ago, five, six years ago, were became seven hundred, eight hundred million, or even one plus billion market cap stocks at the height okay. of COVID froth with a lot of, you know, there was a lot of sort of high net worth mass affluent interest in these names because companies that had diagnostics for or cures for COVID yeah. you know, became yeah. very popular and were written about in all the magazines and on all the chat channels. And, you know, unfortunately that wasn't a durable thing. And, and so, you know, there are companies that have gone from 50 million to 1 billion and are now sort of knocking around 300 million market cap. But okay. as I've just spent the best part of a year writing about in my forthcoming book, which is called Our Future is Biotech, so focusing on this, right. I, I, that was a false dawn. So AIM was one of the best performing stock markets in the entire world in 2020 because a whole right. bunch of little diagnostic companies were up 10, 15, 20x, like Novasite and Synergy and Gene Well, that's not a diagnostic company, but, but many of those AIM companies – and to me, that was a false dawn based on kind of retail frothiness and excitement. But And I think the much more durable performance of these stocks is coming in the next few years, very simply because you can't argue with profitability. And so I've spent eight years looking at this niche. And in that time, there's a whole crop of companies, I mean, you know, three dozen companies or more that have gone from being kind of preclinical phase one, you know, five, six, seven years away from anything consequential of being able to actually make money to being much much closer to that and yet they're still trading at those sort of they've been running on fumes and doing everything um as very effectively and cost effectively because of that because the funding environment's been so hard but they're now teetering on the brink of actually you know a line of sight and making a significant ebit and you know if you can buy a business that's currently capitalized at 200 million pounds which you know i say this with a straight face if it makes it through its, its clinical and commercial trajectory in the next three or four years, will make a net profit number of £200 million pounds four or five years from now. Now, of course, there's yeah. clinical and commercial risk attendant on that, you know, which is why, obviously, a portfolio approach is probably the best approach with these sorts of names. But there are, there are, uh, there are plenty of companies, and I mean that, in, in, on the UK AIM and in, on the ASX in Australia, of which you can say that if they make it through, whatever that hit rate is – they're probably capitalized today around about where their profitability could be, you know, four, five, uh, six How many? I mean, are we talking one, two, three, five, ten, well, fifteen, twenty? So specifically, in, in the ones that I'm giving consideration to, fifteen. In my, oh, in okay. my I've, I've unearthed fifteen where I consider that, that could be the case. Now, and let's be very clear. So the average farm ventures, a big independent, you know, the Gartner Group or McKinsey's of, of this area did a big yeah research piece a couple of years ago where they looked at 12,000 phase transitions. So where a company goes through phase one or phase two or phase three in a clinical okay. trial. Yeah. yeah, And they established that the rough success rate across all trials, which is a pretty rough measurement, is about 30% for phase two trials. And so right. just for the sake of argument, if you could constitute a portfolio of companies that all have a number of phase two assets, and even if you don't, if you're just in line with the averages, you don't beat the average, you, you know, your average chance of success. And you can beat the average, by the way, by using biomarker based trials and, and working in um, clinical indications that have a higher probability of success generally, uh, you know, across the piece. But just the average, let's say the average is 
28% or 29% or whatever it might be. If you have a portfolio full of companies with that probability of success, and so only a third of them make it through phase two, and they're potentially on a PE of one, it, that's potentially quite interesting, I think. You know, yeah. all other things. No, I agree. Because, anyway, so I'm rambling, but that, that, that's, that's broadly what I, I think that's where, ignore America and NASDAQ, which, you know, is also worth ignoring because it's so overbroke and so overcovered and because of the fair weather capital point we made earlier. But if you're willing to dig amongst the weeds in, you know, in, the, in these British companies and Australian companies, this IP is coming out of Oxford and Cambridge. You know, it, it's the pedigree of Nobel Prize winning scientists from Cambridge, from Watson and Crick and on <laughs> through the 80s and 90s. And, and um, you know, these are world, these are companies with world leading science doing cutting edge stuff. And, and I just think they're egregiously undervalued. That, that's my considered opinion um, for all sorts of structural reasons. Uh, I suppose if you're a stock market investor at the moment in the UK, let's look at the let's look at the other options out there. Um, mm. Obviously, option number one is you could own the shares directly, and we, you know, we, we're well versed in the argument of individual stocks versus a fund, um, yeah. diversification, all that kind of stuff. You yeah. could, of course, own one of the big biotech funds. There's a couple of big listed ones, very big ones, and there's a few yeah. uh, usage funds out there, and um, that they've, you know, they've they've kept investor interest. They've had their good times, their bad times. So you've got the big listed biotech funds and their USITS equivalents. And then you've got the um, pre-IPO outfits. Um, yeah. Probably the most well-known one in the British context is Syncoda, which is and the R- old... RTW, uh, obviously, as well. RTW, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But Syncoda yeah. is the old uh, Welcome, is it Welcome yeah. Trust's yeah, exactly. um, venture capital arm. Yeah. And they do kind of pre-IPO stuff, although they've actually got quite a lot of listed shares. But, but that's because yeah. they've had pre-IPO stuff that's listed. Um, yeah. So you've got basically two big choices. You've got listed biotech, yeah, which I'm guessing, I'm no expert, I'm guessing is quite US large cap based. Very, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. You're hitting the net exactly right. Basically, your choice, if you're sitting in, if you're a British individual and you're interested in this sector and you want to own a collective, your choice is broadly US large caps or at least mid caps or in some, or European mid and large caps in, yeah. in yeah, the acts of Famingtons and the Polar Capitals and whatever else. Or um, pre-IPO stuff, very private stuff, and and that that our focus is on the the smaller company stuff where there is no collective that gives you access to that, as far as we're concerned. You know, so how do you against those peers? How would you think? How do you think your niche stacks up against them? Because I suppose the syncoders of the world would argue, mm-hmm. ah, yes, but Andrew, but we're sort of doing the stuff that's before the, it gets to your point, yeah? So these are private companies that haven't quite turned into the uh, listed companies. So that's where the growth is. And well, then I suppose the big guys would say, ah, yes, Andrew, but actually we've got the big companies that got big revenue flows. You know, yeah. these are respected companies. They're well-researched. They're well-broke. They're more liquid. So how do you sort of weigh up your against those two sets of arguments? Well, um, for all sorts of structural reasons, you know, we, we think that the sweet spot in the next few years is going to be the ones that, you know, the mega caps have already moved and they trade like operating stocks where you can put, an, a, you know, you can put a PE ratio or an EV ratio on them. And that they will never have the upside trajectory that a loss making business that's three or four years away from having something really tangible commercial. You know, if, if a business yeah. is capitalized at 200 million yeah. pounds or 300 million pounds and is currently loss making, um, th- there's a series of geared steps whereby, you know, that's basically too small for them to attract the attention of 
either generalist investors with big pots of money or the, the global specialist healthcare investors because those people, yep. their position sizes are too big and they've got 400 NASDAQ listed biotechs to look at. So what, what can happen and what we genuinely believe will happen is a company like that that delivers, that finally, if you like, delivers something commer- clinically um, or commercially consequential can quite quickly on the back of interest from smaller institutions, maybe a few hedge funds, maybe, you know, a few high net worth individuals who've been following it can move from three or four hundred million, maybe or two or three hundred million market cap up to five, six, seven hundred million. At that point, they're then big enough to attract the oxygen of of generalist capital, especially if they're on the verge of profitability, because then generalists feel far more comfortable, you know, evaluating that business on a P.E. ratio rather than it's loss making. I don't really understand how to value it basis. And then, the, and then the global specialists that we've just talked about, whether they sit in London or New York or Boston or whatever else, will also be willing to, or Singapore, will be able to make, be willing to make a 50 to $100 million investment once the business has the critical mass to support that. And, and that means that, and then the bit, and of course, the next step is that those businesses then can index um, in, the, in the FTSE 250 or the ASX 300 in the case of Australian stocks and, could be, and can be supercharged all the way through. Now, we've seen this happen a fair bit in the past there are plenty of examples of that trajectory where you know this is one of the few sectors where that means that a business can go from a hundred million market cap to a billion or more market cap in a few short years because of that series of steps it's about it's about the structure of the institutional investment world as much as it's about the commercial success of these companies um, which is something I've lived and breathed because these have been my clients for the last years eight years And, and I don't think you know, you're not going to you're not going to get that for, if you already own the large caps. Obviously, you're not going to get that yeah. trajectory. I mean, you might get some large what? caps that go from five billion dollars to fifteen billion dollars for sure, but you're not going to get that. Um, what about sorry, the Coda version? Yeah. yeah. And then on the private, well, so then the other thing to say about that, I'm glad you reminded me, is um, in our considered belief, there is a very discernible, if you like, public-private valuation inversion here. And that's, because, that's, again, to do with capital markets and the structure of the investment industry and, and aggregate pools of capital not to do with the companies. So just to explain that, there is, an, there is a vast amount of private and VC money looking at yeah. early stage biotech. You know, and these are highly specialist people with teams of doctors and you know, MD, MBA type, PhD, MD, MBA, very impressive characters. And, and there's a huge, you know, there are untold billions globally in the States, you know, there are a fair few in, in the UK and Europe and in Asia, pointed at interesting early stage stuff. So the sort of stuff that Sincona does and, and lots else besides. Most of those businesses are not set up from a human resource perspective to ever give consideration to a company that is already listed because it's just not what they do. They're, they are VCs, you know, and they'd have to take the company private to adhere to their mandate and, and what they're doing, which means that, that if you're, if, if you like, in inverted commas, unlucky enough to already be listed, to be a biotech company that is unlucky enough to already be listed on AIM or indeed the ASX in Australia or elsewhere in Europe, perhaps, there's been this very strange um, sort of... Um, it's not it's not how capital markets usually function right you know normally the trajectory is from from angel through vc to growth capital to ipo and then you get bigger and you have institutional support and the, and the public you're a public company but in this little niche there are lots of examples of you know lots of vcs chasing a given very exciting private company none of whom will give consideration to a company that might already be listed on aim that potentially has ip that's every bit as good 
and and that and that's right. because all the aim all the people who invest in aim are generalist fund managers who'd rather be investing in easyjet or britvic or Marks yeah. and spencers um and 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 that's very real you know that 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 that's very real but our belief is that that's in the process of changing for all sorts of structural reasons you know foremost among which is the fact that it, the cure for low prices is low prices and if i may just quickly there's a company called yeah. Redex PLC, which capitalised about two hundred million pounds, um, who I've followed for many years. Um, where it, it, I think it's, if you like, the first swallow of summer in terms of me articulating this theme, because it now counts among its shareholders um, Polar Capital, uh, you know, one of the best specialist biotech investors in the UK, Sofinova, one of the best specialist investors, biotech investors in Europe, Platinum, one of the best specialist investors in Australia. And Red Mile, who are one of the smartest American VC biotech investors. And that's one of the first times that, that those sorts of that stripe of investor has been willing to just go, do you know what? Enough is enough. There is some right. really quant- good quality IP listed on AIM. Let's just deal with all the paperwork required for us as VCs to make an investment in a public company. Okay. And I think there'll be a lot more of that. Okay, let's also just talk more generally um, about the biotech revolution. There's lots of breathless talk about. Um, the great genomics revolution out there. I mean, yeah. uh, I've been to a couple of Sincola uh, geno- uh, Capital Markets days. They're, they're very articulate on the whole genomics platform mm. revolution. Um, and you, I'm no, I, I don't have MD, MBA, or or PhD in this kind of stuff. And you know, I sounds convincing to me. Yeah. yeah, are we really, regardless of the of the market they're on, a private, public, uh, main market uh, aim? Are we are we kind of tiptoeing into a revolution, or is it actually same old, same old? And, no, and no, actually, well, there's categorically, and that that's the other fundamental leg to to our position and our argument. Right, is is actually just the big picture macro. It's all about yeah. the science. It's the science exponential. And what I do I talk quite a lot about the fact that so the last century has been about tech and physics, if you like, and you know. Yeah. Between January 8, 1872 and December 2021, the S&P, the S&P as was then the S&P 500 from the 50s onwards, has delivered 9.23% annualised returns going back to 1872. Right. And it's done that because of a series of contrastive ways, you know, automotive, aviation, shipping, yep. transistors, computers. I mean, we know silicon, et cetera, et cetera. The, the next century... I believe, and I don't think it's difficult to evidence this empirically, will be about biotechnology, you know, biotech rather than physics, biology rather than physics. And the reason for that is quite prosaically because most of the intractable remaining problems we confront as a species concern biological systems. So most obviously that's curing cancer or obesity or autism or dementia or Parkinson's disease or whatever, you know, all the big modern diseases of modernity that we confront but it's also about rolling back environmental degradation. It's about longevity. It's about clean power yeah. generation, you know, photovoltaic cells that have biological coatings to increase their efficiency. Um, yeah. The fact that with binary computers, we're running, we're bumping up against the limit of physics and how much more Moore's law can carry on. Well, with DNA based computers, you might have a complete basis change in terms of processing power. And, right. and so that to me, that's very compelling. And then it, but then if you just go into the weeds and the nuts and bolts, okay, what does it actually mean in terms of, because, you know, value creation, big picture has always been where human beings solve intractable problems, whether that's the aviation industry is figuring out how to fly and go from yeah. zero people traveling with airplanes to X billion passenger journeys a year. That's created, you know, a lot of value and so have smartphones and so on else. But um, 
if you look at what on the cutting edge of science, which is all very, you know, science fact increasingly looks like science fiction with gene editing, and CRISPR and everything else. There are quite a number of kind of key areas of scientific innovation where from a standing start, you know, a decade ago, or even in some cases, even as recently as two or three years ago, these businesses, are gro- the commercial value, whether you talk about market cap or indeed billions of dollars of revenue, from a standing start, you've got a whole raft of these areas of innovation, which are now, you know, tens of billions or on their way to a hundred billion of revenue per annum. And to me, that's unlike pretty much any other sector. And, you know, those would be gene and cell therapy, which is growing at a compound annual growth rate at the moment of around 30%. So is gene editing. And, you know, CRISPR, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna's um, 2020 Nobel Prize for CRISPR, this gene editing technology, you know, that's only that Nobel Prize is only two years old and the technology is only sort of 10 years old. And, and it's only now that those companies that are functioning in that area and trying to... Um, cure sickle cell anemia or whatever else using technologies like that are beginning to deliver products but but all of the above is more exponential than moore's law you know that sorry go on i I, I, I was just going to ask what if you had to get your crystal ball out yeah and look Mm. at the next two to three years so not the next 10 years next two to three years obviously the last couple of years we've known what that technology has brought us it's brought us well not well it's book helped us treat COVID, not quite cured it, but it's yeah. helped us treat it. So, so that's a, a practical mRNA technology. We understand it's had a practical implication. It's had a real world implication. What do you think if you had to put your get a crystal ball out and put and look at what one one or two things that will come this way in the yeah. next two or three years? What would you guess? Uh, look, we may be completely wrong. Yeah, no, no, so well, something no, will come, come left field. Well, I think you know. So there's already there are sensible commentators that have valid. So last year, um, cancer drug revenues were about 175 billion US dollars in aggregate, right? All of, all the monoclonal yeah. antibodies, the checkpoint inhibitor, immune, immune checkpoint drugs. So they're already 175 billion dollars of revenues last year to all the mega pharma okay. companies that have those programs, and they're forecast to be well north of 300 billion by 2026. So you know, okay. you, 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 now. Just quickly, so that so that's an arms race which is going on. Quite often, people challenge that because a lot of these drugs are like you know one hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar drugs. And one yeah. of the big things you hear from sort of sensible um, generalist investors, well, hang on, that's unsustainable because healthcare systems can't possibly carry. You know, yeah. you're never going to get four hundred billion dollars yeah. worth of cancer drugs by two thousand thirty because the you know the healthcare systems can't afford it. Let alone America, let alone the NHS, and that's actually in my opinion, a fallacious argument for the simple reason that, that drug revenues are only, fi- sorry, drug costs are only 15% of healthcare costs. The other right. 85% of healthcare costs are everything else. And drugs tend to bring, so, you know, a hepatitis drug that costs $24,000 saves the healthcare system a $600,000 liver transplant. Um, okay. And I think that's poorly understood. So, so if, if there's one thing, you know, the cancer, there's gonna be a lot of These checkpoint inhibitors, which have really remarkable, almost, you know, you can almost talk about curing cancer for a certain set of patients. um, And it's wonderful for those. But, you know, children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, for example, being given CAR T therapy, that there are some really marvelous outcomes. But at the moment, um, you know, response rates are only kind of 20, 30, 40 percent, depending on which one. It's a bit higher for CAR T. Um, and I think that that value, that 200 billion-ish more of value in the cancer um, space will come from some of 
the new technologies and the combo therapies um, and new ideas and new science actually it's it's sort of if you like solving that problem of only right. limited patient response so that's one liquid biopsy another is another one which is a simple blood test for cancer rather than a horrible yeah. invasive you know um, uh, biopsy under general anesthetic which can often kill a late stage cancer patient so you know it, it it's not too many years from now where you'll almost every hospital in the world will have a machine and just take a simple blood test and go, no, you're all right, you don't have prostate cancer, instead of some horrendously invasive, you know, set yeah. spikes being stuck in a certain part of your anatomy. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah, and, and and so, you know, I think in terms of on a two to three year view, I think that's kind of, they're probably the most, they're a couple well, what of about, things. What about, I was, I was going to ask a sort of penultimate question here. Um mm. Just moving out of pure biotech, you've already hinted at it around synthetic materials. And uh, yeah. I know if you listen a lot to people like Kathy Woods over in the States, they talk a lot about synthetic biology and how that actually has implications just beyond just biotech, yeah, yeah. in food, materials, that kind of stuff, chemicals. Do you think that yeah. that's overdone or do you think there is really something coming there? No, I think absolutely. Well, I'm not. From, I'm not 100 au fait with what people like Kathy Wood are saying about that specifically. But I, but all I can say is I think there is an enormous market opportunity for sure. You know, cell cultured meat, synthetic biology, nanobots. I mean, you know, yeah. for all we know, all these companies spending tens of billions of dollars across the piece to develop new cancer drugs that are really complicated, large molecule drugs that might all be swept away with some incredibly clever nanoparticle yeah. technology that just hunts and seeks out cancer um, cells. Um, and it's a completely new paradigm. That's a bit further down the road, obviously. But but without question, I mean, Jim Mellon, who I, I know you know, the, the British billionaire investor, yeah. just in terms of the agricultural industry, for example, his marvellous book, Moo's Law, um, yeah. you know, talks about the fact that if – the promise of of biotech applied to agricultural productivity yeah, is yeah, such yeah. that you, you know that could have really really wonderful implications for rolling back environmental degradation because you could rewild and you know ninety percent of the world's our, our land that's currently used for livestock farming could be rewilded if we have really really good synthetic meat and I would say you know people oh well, that's Franken meat so I'm never going to eat synthetic lobster or synthetic beef or whatever but if it's genetically identical it smells the same it tastes the same. I think that will be no more unusual for people 10, 15 years from now um, and yeah. so much better for the world and, and for animal welfare than what we currently do, of course, than, than, you know, if you said to a Victorian in 1850 when they thought that going 20 miles an hour on a train might make you mad and or kill you, <laughs> that people today in China and Japan routinely travel 200 miles an hour in their trains, you know, your average Victorian would have looked at you like you were mad. Um, yeah. And, and I, think, I think these kind of things that seem unconscionable might now – uh, that develop exponentially and quite soon they will you know a bit like an iphone i mean i saw a piece the other day saying that a, an, a, the tech in an iphone 14 would have cost a hundred million dollars in 1991 to put that tech really? together from, 100 million yeah, bucks. IPhone. that you know that's the quantum of exponential progress and i and okay. i think across all of these areas we're going to surprise ourselves and and, and bigger picture that's going to be actually hugely positive for mankind because a lot of our exponential yeah. problems have exponential solutions, and I think most of them, or many of them, will come from biotech companies. No, I agree. Well, one last comment. Um, so you've, you've spotted this opportunity. There's this niche, um, uh, and presumably you plan to do something about it. Yeah, yes, but as you know, for, for compliance reasons, so we're hoping, we're hoping to IPO a company on the London stock market between now and Christmas. 
Um, the okay. Financial Times actually very kindly wrote a, a piece about it last yeah, week. I saw it. Um, yeah, it's called the Conviction Life Sciences Company, and I can say that. And we're hoping in the next few days to be able to publish the prospectus. And uh, the, the, once we publish the prospectus, we can publish our website, which will be clsc.uk, not .co.uk, .uk. So, but yeah, hopefully at some point next week we will be up in lights talking about an aspiration to IPO a business to, if you like, implement all of th- these thoughts uh, um, by owning a portfolio of companies that are in uh, are acting in this space. And I have to say, Andrew, I mean, congratulations. I mean, you know, if you get it away, hopefully you do. <laughs> I mean, it's a very difficult market. You have really chosen your time. It, um, it is. And I know, think that, 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 that's why... I'm enormously excited to buy to put the yeah. positions on and let you know. Let's hope we can get get it up in lights. Yeah, and I think actually, uh, fingers crossed. I think actually, you might be the first new IPO if it goes ahead of a fund on the London market this year, which is uh, because I don't think there's been anything else. And I, I think the only other one was, was a, a farm fund, um, a sustainable yeah. farmland fund, which I thought was a pretty good good idea. Uh, and I thought it was going to happen. That got uh, delayed or yeah. paused. So well, we, uh, you've we been. Really- we we hope. Sorry, I am interrupting. Go on. Yeah, I, you will be. You will be number one. That, that's an astonishing statistic, actually. Yeah, it's it could potentially it? be that twenty twenty two could happen with just one IPO. Because I can, I can tell you that I I track IPOs. Yeah. And you're pretty much the only one I that I know is lurking out there. I hadn't sort of really taken that on board. I knew it was pretty terrible. But I mean, look, I think we're a bit unusual in that. We, we, um, our audience, I've spent 10 years building an email list of kind of, you know, the general yeah. public and the mass affluent. And we, we've got a, a nice big email list and, and a pretty engaged audience. And also through my old day job, um, relationships with kind of high net worth individuals and family offices. So we're trying to do this in quite an unusual way. And we want to be yeah. a conduit for mass affluent capital. And one of the things that, that is very clear to me in the last many years is, how often I'll speak to just a member of the public who's had a pretty good career and has a pretty decent pension. He'll say, you know, I lost my wife to breast cancer or, or my father yeah. has suffered from Parkinson's disease for years. And I, you know, I've read about the CRISPR winning the Nobel prize and I take an interest in kind of popular science and I can really see everything we've just talked about in the last half an hour. Lots of people understand it intuitively, but I just don't know where to start in terms of putting some of my pension or my ISA into it. I don't, it's too intimidating and i don't want to do single stock investment and, and, and us wanting to build this is a reaction to to, to that because that, that that's tragic for them on the one hand because that there's definitely a latent demand there but it's even more tragic for these companies that have been struggling over the last many yeah. years to fund themselves to do really exceptional things you know things that could really impact costs in the nhs could impact patient outcomes i mean it, i've really you know, it's been a huge frustration of mine for the last eight years seeing these wonderful companies and everyone involved working incredibly hard and just just really struggling to attract the oxygen of capital. And we can make even a small dent in that problem. Then you know, we'll be delighted by that, even if we are the only IPO in London this year. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's the amazing two amazing statistics. I a you raise some capital that could help British companies, and b yeah. you might be the only IPO this year. On the you've just market, scared which... me. I hadn't, I hadn't fully, as I say, I hadn't fully taken that on board. <laughs> Let's hope we can do it for for, the, for if only for UK PLC, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, listen, Andrew, good luck with it all, and no doubt we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you, David.